104 presents the Mark Steele Lecture, a series of lectures on Englishmen who've changed the course of history. Episode 2, W.G. Grace. For some people, W.G. Grace is a symbol of a time when England ruled the world and won at cricket. Uh, so I'd read in these old cricket books how W.G. has even inspired some of the greatest poetry ever known to the English language. For example, Oh, to be in Gloucester, when Grace goes out to bat. 114 not out and 4 for 38. My goodness, fancy that. <laughs> <laughs> The subtext of all this, of course, is that things were better in the old days, a sentiment which curses England and English cricket, a sentiment summed up by Fred Truman, the commentator. <laughs> Every, what is going on out there is, oh, I don't know, they are coming off the field of play for bad light or so. Oh, what does it do? It's because it's half past seven and games ended. Well, I give up. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, we, we carried on batting through the middle at night and give crowd its money's worth. We never had none of these um, sissy, numby, bumby helmets or pads or, or clothes or bats or whatever, but it nude. <laughs> so what a tragic symbol of Britain's slide in the world that now not only do the old colonies beat us at it, but we can't admit that it's because they're better than us. So when we started losing to them one by one, first Pakistan, we had to go, no, they were cheating, they put Marmite on the ball. <laughs> and then when we started losing to the West Indies, we had to say it was because they were bowling too many bouncers. <laughs> So the English could change the rules. So they decided to change the rules so you could now only bowl one of these bouncers per over, one every six balls. And then we went to India, where they all bowl slowly and spin the ball, and we lost every single match. <laughs> I thought there'd be another rule for them, only allowed to spin the ball once and over. <laughs> and now New Zealand. There's only about 11 people in the whole country. <laughs> In New Zealand, if you take an afternoon off work during the test match, you probably get the selectors going, you don't want to keep wicket for the afternoon, do you? <laughs> and we lost to them. There'll be another rule for them. Now only allowed to bowl the ball once and over. <laughs> you have to push the other five down the wicket on a tea trolley. <laughs> so how do we look back at WG Grace without being influenced by all this? Well, first of all, does he really matter? Well, he does, really, because for 30 years he was the most famous person in England, with the possible exception of Gladstone and Queen Victoria herself. He was the first modern celebrity, attracting crowds of 10,000, putting out a ghosted biography, doing tacky adverts. But he was also the perfect living model of Victorian times. For example, in his book Cricket, he lists... Uh, a few points which every beginner should carry in his mind. And number nine is... Do not go into the field with a pipe in your mouth. <laughs> See, this is what the Victorian middle class were all about. So proud of their customs that they had to be instructed not to pursue them, even while batting. There's probably another list that goes, Number one, as the bowler is running in, try not to shoot any elephants. <laughs> this can impede your backlift. Public school games masters and parents of Eton schoolboys, it seems to me, must long for their kids to aspire to the values of WG. But the truth about him is he used to stay up all night before playing, drinking and playing billiards. He drank whiskey and seltzer before going out to bat. He was disciplined for hitting spectators, including whacking a schoolboy with a stump. <laughs> Although he was an amateur, he refused to play unless he was paid huge appearance fees. He found dozens of new ways of cheating, and he left Gloucester after a furious row with the authorities. In other words, if he was around today, he'd be banned from ever playing cricket again. <laughs> 
He was born in 1848, the year in which Britain first approached the world with this new confident dominance, and he died in 1915 as the First World War was shattering this particular dream. And he was born into a well-to-do family at a time when the middle classes were growing ever richer, ever more confident. Britain was the only industrial nation and the richest nation. In 1851, it staged the Great Exhibition at the specially built Crystal Palace in Hyde Park to show off British products and engineering to the rest of the planet. The Times described... The first morning since the creation of the world that all peoples have assembled from all parts of the world for a common act. Whereas I predict this time next year, the world will not be full of people assembling to gasp... Well, forget the pyramids. Wait till you see the upside-down walk in an inaccessible part of Greenwich. (laughs) (laughs) And the only questions about engineering that will be asked is, when's this tube line going to be finished? (laughs) Now, one of the most enthusiastic players of cricket at that time was Henry Grace. Bristol doctor and classic Victorian because he was obsessed with social status and a belief that God rewarded those that worked the hardest. Henry Grace studied at the London Hospital to become one of the few qualified doctors who hadn't been to Oxbridge and he set up a practice in Bristol. Started work at eight, so he went to the Common at five o'clock every morning to practice cricket. Which must have looked a bit weird. (laughs) Maybe he was just caught up the common in the middle of the night and it was the only thing he could think of to say. It would still be more plausible than modern excuses if he'd gone... I I was uh, on the common at five in the morning uh, to practice my off-spin bowling uh, and in an act which I now recognise was foolish, I handed my mobile phone and my car to the umpire. And uh, after I bowled the ball, I turned around and he'd gone. (laughs) So WG was born into this environment of middle-class confidence, of prosperity and stability, of adherence to self-restraint, family values and a love of science and progress. He spent every spare moment of his youth practising cricket, often batting with a broom handle, and he practised fielding by throwing stones at birds. And remembering this later, he said, Well, decline in English fielding is as a result of the declining numbers of country-bred boys who strengthen their arms by pitching stones at birds in the fields. (laughs) They weren't really animal liberationists, the Victorians. (laughs) You can imagine him writing, There is no finer practice than to practice your batting by square-cutting kittens through the covers. (laughs) On top of this, Grace also walked seven miles each way to school and back, and in his first years at school, he walked another 14 miles a day by coming home to lunch, which is the sort of hard work... Sort of, this is the sort of hard work and effort the Victorians thought brought you close to God, though God was probably thinking, oh, just give the boy a packed lunch! <laughs> WG played for the local team, and he was a regular for West Gloucester by the time he was 15, which led to the most important decision of his life. Cricket at this time reflected Victorian social mores being divided between the players, the professionals who had to earn money from playing, and the gentlemen, the amateurs, who were unsullied by the vulgar need to earn money as they had a private or inherited income. Now, this attitude meant that at first amateurs and professionals couldn't even play on the same side together. But even when they could, later on, they changed in different changing rooms, walked onto the field through different gates and travelled in different compartments, the amateurs in the first class and the professionals obviously in the second. Now, you could see why the gentlemen would want to travel in first-class trains, but different gates to walk onto the pitch? They must have honestly thought that if they walked along the same path as the professionals, they would somehow catch working-classness off the gate. 
So they'd come in for lunch, someone would ask them if they wanted a drink, and they'd say, I don't know why, but I seem to fancy a carafe of Spam. <laughs> and Butler, could you nip down to Fortnum and Mason's for me and pick me up half an ounce of Golden Virginia and a wadge of lottery tickets? <laughs> At one point, Lord Harris justified the divisions on a tour to Australia, saying... Well, some of our professionals prefer to travel second class rather than have to dress each night for dinner. <laughs> the trouble in the 1860s was that amateurs were killing the game. They refused to go north even to play against the professional sides, and every year on the glorious 12th, they'd all uh, abandon the game completely and go grouse shooting instead. And even when they played, they were useless. To make a match of it, when the professionals batted, they batted with a fourth stump. But this didn't make any difference, so then they started having 11 players against the amateurs 22. <laughs> so the MCC saw that there was one man who could save amateur cricket. By the time he was 18, Grace was acclaimed as the best batsman in the country and one of the best bowlers. But the problem for Maribyrn Cricket Club, the MCC, was that Grace was only the son of a doctor and nowhere near rich enough to live off an inheritance. So WG was admitted into the MCC as an amateur because although he wouldn't be paid, he would get paid expenses. Wink, wink. <laughs> so, WG would be an amateur in name while actually being paid far more than any professional. And Grace then transformed the game, partly by being so good, but also by introducing a new attitude, replacing the old English gentleman's code. For example, before Grace, if a bowler bowled a bad ball, it was considered ill-mannered to hit it behind you. And the Victorian gentry took their manners seriously. There were probably boats going to penal colonies in Australia with blokes going, What did you do? Why, Governor, I did carry out the Pexington Street robbery. And you? Well, I did murder a series of prostitutes in the East End of London. What about you? I clipped a long hop off the Earl of Leighton Buzzard just backward of square for a single... <laughs> Also, despite the rotund figure that he presented in later photos as a youth, Grace brought a whole new level of fitness to the game. Just after his 17th birthday, he was picked to play for England against Surrey, and he scored 224. So the next day, he said to the captain, do you mind if I have the afternoon off from fielding? And the captain said, OK. So he went away, came back later in the day, and they said, oh, where did you go, by the way? And where he'd been was to Crystal Palace Park to take part in and win the National Olympian Association 440 Yards Hurdles Championship. <laughs> better than anyone had ever been. He transformed the notion of what batting was. Years later, another cricketer, C.B. Fry, said... He turned batting from an accomplishment into a science. By 1871, at the age of 22, Grace was scoring more runs in a season than anybody before. In Nottingham, 10,000 people came to see him bat. The interest that Grace generated at this time now was crucial for enabling cricket to develop into a national game throughout the new Britain. Because this was when Britain became the first modern nation with a national education system. Clocks around the country were synchronised for the first time because of the national rail timetable. And national rules in cricket were drawn up. Up until 1863, there had been no national code at all, with each area playing by its own rules. So it must have been like going into a strange pub and playing pool when you put the black and then they go... No, well, you lose now, see? <laughs> because, uh, because round here, you see, if you pod the black, that means you lose, see? <laughs> Unless you say umpty dumpty first. <laughs> Bad luck, see? So probably people went to play cricket out of their own area and bowled people out, and the batsman went, no, you have to nominate the stump first. <laughs> There was one side to WG, though, that didn't quite fit the Victorian image. So apparently he was very nervous talking to women because of, according to a woman who rejected his offer of marriage... His high, squeaky voice. 
You can't imagine Victorians having high, squeaky Gloucester voices. Because of BBC costume dramas, you think that all Victorians say things like, Perchance, my dear wife, I should be most grateful were you to assist me by passing the marmalade thither. <laughs> Round someone's house, instead of excuse me, where's the carsey? You forgive me, sire, for I know not the precise situation of the receptacle which awaits my humble outpourings. <laughs> WG must have arrived at a town with every local dignitary as a reception committee, with the proud squire elected to greet him. Permit me, Mr. Grace, if I may venture, that your presence in our parish is as noble an honour as any which has befallen our proud county. Oh, thanks very much. Let's hope the weather holds up. <laughs> At the, at the peak of his abilities in the 1870s, Grace became a symbol of another change in the Victorian attitude, because as Britain became a modern nation for the first time, like all nations, it had to create a national identity, including traditions and myths that it claimed tied all of its citizens to a shared history. For example, at this point, the royal family was just uh, seen as an obscure anomaly of an industrial age. Gladstone said... To speak in rude and general terms, the Queen is invisible and the Prince of Wales is not respected. So they dragged the royal family out of obscurity, reinvented all the pageantry and gave us the people that we've got today. The national anthem was rediscovered. Columns and statues of great Englishmen went up in every town. And WG became a living example of why the English should love England as part of the chain of eternal Englishness that is cricket. And cricket was proving crucial with respect to the empire. The Reverend Pycroft had written in a book called The Cricket Field. The game of cricket, philosophically considered, is a standing panegyric of the English character. None but an orderly and sensible race of people would so amuse themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but the cricket was seen as the ideal way to export the English values of democracy, justice, fair play, workhouses and shooting people who didn't want to be ruled by England. <laughs> In 1872, Grace went on his first tour abroad to Canada and America, which took ten days to get to by boat. The morning after he arrived, he got up in the middle of the night, hired a tandem to cycle 20 miles along a bush track and go shooting and fishing. Then he cycled back for a champagne lunch. The next day scored 81, went to another banquet, stayed up drinking and dancing till three in the morning, got up early and went canoeing down the rapids of the Ottawa River on a lumber raft. <laughs> you can't really imagine your modern English cricketer behaving like that, can you? The nearest someone like Mike Atherton would get a bit of ring down to room service and go, I don't suppose you do fish fingers. <laughs> The following year was the first ever cricket tour of Australia. 52-day journey, in which involved sailing through a hurricane. And once in Australia, Grace and his team still had to travel on these gruelling journeys. There was a nine-hour journey to a place called Bathurst, a 19-hour ride through a storm by horse and cart to Warnham Ball, followed by a trip into the outback to shoot quails. And he loved Warnham Ball because he was taking kangaroo hunting. And about kangaroos, he said... Well, they're extraordinarily clever creatures, galloping across scrub and bracken, reaching up to their girth. And though fallen trees may be lying about, they pick their course with perfect certainty, unless you shoot them through the head. <laughs> <laughs> A typical journey was one where we had 74 miles from Ballarat, where the wicket had been mud, so the ball didn't bounce at all, but just stayed in a puddle. <laughs> and he went from there to Starwell, and the journey took 12 hours through a dust storm. And to relieve the boredom, the team shot parrots from the window. <laughs> and WG said, Well, it seems rather cruel to kill the lively and entertaining parrot, but as they are plentiful in Australia, as sparrows are in London, the offence is not very serious. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe he's right, but... 
from an English point of view, you just can't help but imagine this swarm of parrots going, Watch out, the bearded bastard's got a gun! Watch out, the bearded bastard's got a gun! <laughs> Everywhere Grace went, he seemed to want to shoot things. I bet if he'd come round your house, you'd be terrified and nip into the kitchen to put the kettle on, or you'd hear... Sorry, old bean. Saw the hamster. Couldn't help myself. WG did have some idea of his value as a living symbol of the new Britain and the Empire, although he wasn't quite as aware as Lord Harris, who said... The trials of cricket prepare our young men for the considerably more dangerous pitches they will face abroad. WG, despite his squeaky voice, had married Agnes, who was a second cousin, and here was the one area of his life where WG departed from Victorian middle-class values. He proclaimed his belief in being loyal to his family and faithful to his wife, and then he was. <laughs> he never locked up the chambermaid and sent her to Belgium, never had a secret love child in Sydney, never locked his mad granny in the attic. What sort of Victorian is that? <laughs> The hypocrisy of the age might not have tainted his personal life, but it did surround his career. So, as one book about Grace puts it... He accepted the hierarchy of status in the game without question. But that clearly isn't true. He might not have formally lodged complaints, because that's not the Victorian middle-class way. The trick was, if you had the clout, which he clearly did, to undermine institutions subtly and on an individual basis. This is why Jane Austen novels are full of things like... Oh, I do believe I feel a little faint. Would it be too much of an imposition upon your generosity if I were to stay another night, Mr Darcy? And not... Marry me, Mr Darcy, not that slapper sister of mine. She's a slag. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout his life, uh, he remained officially an amateur, but when he went to Australia for the second time, he demanded that his fee was doubled to £3,000, which is £140,000 in today's money. Now, Grace who throughout his career continued his medical studies and his work as a doctor, must have been aware that the aristocrats who ruled the game were far richer than he was. For example, the MCC treasurer was Lord Spencer Ponsonby Fane. Now, when you are called that, you clearly own everything. I am willing to bet any amount of money there has never been anyone called Lord Spencer Ponsonby Fane who has said the sentence, I can't come up the pub tonight, my gyro doesn't come till Tuesday. <laughs> Once on the ground at Gloucester, he put up a notice forbidding anybody to play on the outfield, and when he came back, he found the boys ignoring a notice, so he hit one of them with a stump. And he wrote a letter to the boy's father apologising, but even in the letter he said... Nine out of every ten persons would have done the same, under provocation. <laughs> There was a time he arrived at a railway station and asked the clerk at the ticket office whether his ticket was valid. And when the clerk said it wasn't, he got out a golf club, which he called his cleaver, and rammed it through the window. <laughs> so this is where I agree with the Daily Telegraph types. We need to revive the spirit of WG. Because it'd be brilliant if we all had to end up writing letters to the managers of the rail companies. Letters that went, I apologise for whacking Richard Branson on the arse with a stump, but nine out of ten persons would have done the same under the provocation. <laughs> On his second tour of Australia, at the third test, WG boycotted another official function. Then he complained about the pitch, tried to rope off one end of the ground to shorten the boundary without anyone seeing, <laughs> and refused to allow the Australian captain to use his own penny for the toss. <laughs> then his team played these extraordinary practical jokes. When a player got bitten by a big spiky fish, Grace and his friends convinced him that it was poisonous and that he was going to die. 
For a laugh. But this is just the normal mentality of the Victorian. We amused ourselves greatly during an afternoon's bathing by throwing a crocodile into the river. The beast heartily ate Sir Theobald's limbs and torso, but in the evening we drank several bottles of splendid wine and no malice was born. He was regularly in trouble with the umpires. He once ran out a batsman who was wandering up the wicket to chat to his partner. There was the time he hit his own wicket, but tried to get away with it by replacing the bale and saying, <coughs> Strong wind today, umpire. <laughs> and there was the time at Clifton in 1878 where the ball bounced into his shirt and lodged there. So he ran three more runs with the ball in his shirt. <laughs> and he said later, well, How were the Surrey men to get the ball? they stopped me, they were breaking the rule which forbids a fielder to impede the batsman. It was classic grace and classic Victorian, really, because it wasn't, strictly speaking, cheating. It was just interpreting the rules liberally. Lord Hawke said of him... He would stretch the laws of cricket uncommonly taught in his own favour. <laughs> but through all this, he continued scoring more runs, usually twice as many as anybody else in the country. Ticket prices, therefore, became double for matches that he was playing in. The first use of a celebrity for an advert was a poster of WG walking out to bat under the slogan, Coleman's mustard, like grace, heads the field. <laughs> Being an advertising executive in them days must have been a doddle. <laughs> The advertising was typical, really, of how in the later stages of his career, WG was still a symbol of the age, because now he represented the transition from Victorian to modern Britain. So he was the first celebrity famous enough to be on adverts, but you wouldn't imagine him doing the sort of advert he'd be asked to do if he was around now. Ah! Oh, ah! Oh, ah! Oh. My God, what can that be? WG, what are you doing to my son? The boy served me a sausage with no Coleman's mustard, so I'm hitting him with a stump. <laughs> I'm not surprised. After all, nine out of every ten persons would have done the same. <laughs> WG not only went on playing professionally into his fifties, he seemed to get even more runs the older he got. In 1894, he scored his hundredth century against Somerset and was presented on the field with a magnum of champagne, which he drank there and then. <laughs> And he then carried on batting and ended up with 288. <laughs> Despite this level of fame, he couldn't forgo his doctor's practice. He once stayed up all night carrying out an operation before going straight from there to bat. <laughs> In the 1880s, at the end of each cricket season, he returned immediately to his practice to ride around on an ancient bicycle attending the sick in the workhouse. And this, remember, was the most famous person in Britain. It'd be like somebody now ringing for a doctor on a run-down estate in Moss Side and getting Carol Valdeman. <laughs> Going, we'll see how you get on with the antibiotics, love, and I'll pop back next Wednesday straight after countdown. <laughs> then in 1898, Grace resigned as a doctor and got a job setting up a new cricket club called London County in Crystal Palace Park. The idea was that London County would be the first team in the championship which had a completely urban following, made up from the working class and middle classes of the growing suburbs of London, and run on a purely commercial basis, independent of interference from the aristocracy. But the aristocracy still ran the MCC, so although London County was one of the best and most popular teams in the country, they were never allowed to take part in the national championship. And without the competition, the team and the venture suffered, and as the team fell apart, so did Grace's life. He'd wanted to carry on playing for Gloucester while running London County, but the Gloucester board wouldn't let him, so Grace resigned with the letter, which ended... I have the greatest affection for the county of my birth, but for the committee as a body, the greatest contempt. 
So Grace moved up to London, but shortly after his daughter Bessie died, aged 21. And in 1905, his son Bertie died, aged 30. And the following year, WG retired at the age of 57. London County wasn't even allowed to play in the Minor Counties Championship, so the club finally collapsed. In 1914, as the First World War began, Britain was having to face up to this whole new world, in which America would take over as the most important nation. On the 23rd of October 1915, he had a heart attack and died, and his estate was worth £6,326, the equivalent of about a quarter of a million today. So hardly poor, but for someone who'd been the most famous man in Britain for 30 years, at a time when there were no Ferraris or Coke habits to blow it on, <laughs> it was probably less than you might expect. So what can we learn then from WG's life? Well, it has been claimed by some people, like CLR James, that Grace was not just a sportsman, but an artist. But he didn't play his shots to express his emotions artistically. He was just trying to score runs. He didn't have artistic phases where he thought, I'll go for a whole season scoring naught and call it my duck period. <laughs> <laughs> the journalist AJ Gardiner wrote that when he heard the news of WG's death... In the midst of world-shaking events, something stirred me. For a brief moment, I forgot the war and was back in the age where we greeted the rising sun with light hearts where we used to be happy. The sun was beginning to set on the empire and the death of WG must have jolted the middle class into realising it was slipping away. Since then, the hypocrisy and the snobbery and the violence of Britain around the world have stayed pretty much the same, except that now we don't rule the world anymore and we're rubbish at cricket. <laughs> but we can't face up to it. So that's why we have to make up the excuses and think it will help if we change the rules. Like when we insisted on neutral umpires because we said that umpires from places like the West Indies were biased. But if we want to beat the West Indies, we'll have to just scrap umpires altogether and have them replaced with coppers. <laughs> so as the bowler's about to bowl, he goes, Oh, you sure you didn't nick that ball, son? In the 20th century, it was the West Indies and the colonies who played cricket with the confidence of an emerging nation. So the West Indians sang calypsos at the matches, full of joy and spirit. But what would an English calypso be like? We don't wave flags or make a sound or we'll be evicted from the cricket ground. We see corporate boxes and the MCC and England lose by an innings and 43. <laughs> cricket, English cricket, at Lords where we play it, we politely lose our wicket. Unless rain comes to delay it. <laughs> so now WG is remembered as this paragon of English virtue. Despite the entrance into Lords being named after WG, though, anybody half as drunk or half as stroppy as he used to be would just be thrown out of the ground. And if you sat in the Compton stand shooting parrots, you'd be banned for life. <laughs> John Major had a portrait of WG hung in Downing Street, although Gracie's career was the complete opposite of Major's mythical long shadows on village greens. So we should remember WG properly as the first national hero, a genius cricketer, a drunk, a cheat, a slayer of animals, embodiment of Victorian society and hypocrisy, insubordinate to authority and probably a bloody good laugh to have an all-night lock-in with. <laughs> and as the figure who has, of course, inspired some of the greatest poetry known to man. And as such, he should have a poem etched to him onto the wall at Lord's just under the Grace Gates that goes, an old man called Grace who played cricket said, play for ten pounds, you can stick it. For that, my dear fella, I'll drink twelve pints of Stella and throw up all over the wicket. <laughs> the Mark Steele Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Melanie Hudson and Kim Wall. The producer was Phil Clark. Cricket,
Thank you.